Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. and welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. I'm Cindy House. Thanks for joining us today. And again, once again, um, just as last week, I am talking to you from the past. So uh, as of this moment, I am unsure where we stand as a nation, but crossing my fingers and my toes. All right. Um, let's talk about our guest today, Lizzie No. Around age 10, Lizzie No was getting tired of the violin. The Princeton-born No picked the harp after seeing it wheeled into an elevator on the show Different Strokes. It was the weirdest instrument that she could have imagined. While attending Stanford, she took on the job as an assistant researcher where she could listen to music for hours at a time while at work. Over time, she started to realize that she was far more interested in the music that she was listening to than the research that was being conducted. Music kept calling and gnawing at her to a degree where she finally allowed herself to give music a chance. As a songwriter, she works to evoke writers with important messages, particularly Bob Dylan, who became a true North after she learned a whole set of his songs on the harp and became in awe of the writing and morality tales in his political songs. Lizzie shares her experience of being a black folk singer in that she thought if she were to play country and folk that she would be taking someone else's music as her own. She didn't know yet that folk and country came from African musical forms that came to Americana because of slavery. She felt like she was fighting her way into something that she didn't have a right to. Once she started to get to know the black artists that are in folk right now, she realized that she did belong and began to learn the history. Lizzie is whip smart and her perspective on this topic could unsurprisingly fill an entire podcast on its own. And we also talk about ego and narcissism, which encompasses her latest album, Vanity. Her insight on the different sides of the ego is fascinating. I literally could talk to Lizzie No every day, 10 out of 10. Please enjoy. We'll take a listen to a song from her new album, uh, and then we will get to our conversation. Let's check out Labor Day, we'll listen to this, and then talk to Lizzie No on Basic Folk. After dark, startled horses and the headlights. And when the sun came up, the mountain showed its spine. Indian paintbrush, trouble on my mind. Indian Lizzie, no, thank you so much for joining us. 
today. And thank you for having me. I am like really excited to be on Basic Folk. Cool. Because I'm a big fan of a lot of the people that you've had on. Thanks. Okay, we're going to talk about your whole entire life. Okay, great. Really personal, invasive questions. Here we go. Let's get into it. Yes. (laughs) You grew up in Princeton, New Jersey, home to the very prestigious Ivy League. Uh, How did you... Very fancy. Yeah. (laughs) What was it like in your town? Like, how did you feel about your town, the school? And in what ways did Princeton help shape you? Um... That's a great question, how it shaped me. I haven't really thought about that. I think I got pretty used to not being comfortable. (laughs) Um, I went to great private schools starting from age three, but like came from a working class background. So it was a lot of like, my sister and I are here on scholarship and look how shiny and uh, and, uh, like in the group we can be. So that was like from toddlerhood up through, you know, whenever I was sort of like a guest. Um, And that is sort of how I felt in Princeton. It's a really fancy schmancy old money type of place, but it's also a place where a lot of smart people come from all over the world. And so being someone that loved to read was like not a weird thing and being someone who liked to be around trees was not a weird thing. Um, And so those are like two things that I still hold with me. Hmm. And I think being a little bit of an outsider, a lot of people feel that way for whatever reason, but for me, it was like a strong class and race thing um, going to the private schools that I went to. Um, I think that was something that, I don't know if I would choose that for my for myself as like if I were to give young, you know, three-year-old Lizzie all the gifts I could give her, would I give her that gift, the gift of like being uncomfortable? I don't know, um, but it is the way that I grew up and I think it showed me how to like try to find something of myself within mm. an uncomfortable environment. Right. Yeah, that's so interesting to think about how that uncomfortableness there's like pros and cons to every attribute, yeah. of course. Um, so, yeah, so complex. Let's do the whole interview about that. <laughs> Just <Let's> kidding. <laughs> I, I could go on and on. This is like free therapy. <laughs> Music was hugely incorporated into your life from a very early age where you and your sister took music lessons. You started with the violin at age three. How was music treated in your house, and why was it so important to your parents that you learn an instrument? I think it had a lot to do with, like, what we know about the brain. And, like, my dad is a musician, and my mom is a great appreciator of music. So, like, they always valued it as something that was really important to have in our lives and all different kinds of music. And also it was the sort of thing that I think they realized could instill discipline in me and my sister. Um, So like while it was something that was fun, like when we listened to the radio, it was fun and we would dance around like and, you know, try to harmonize in the car. But as far as playing instruments and choir, a lot of it had to do with 
developing a sense of responsibility and practice. I mean, I don't want to speak for my parents, but that is sort of the tone that it had. And for me, it's it almost has taken a little bit longer for me to loosen up. Like I'm not a great improviser because I have always had such a respect for like the masters, <laughs> you know, growing up, like taking music lessons and having the discipline that we had. It was like, this is something that you have to like aspire to, not something that belongs to you yet. Oh, wow. They could have maybe also accomplished that by getting you a puppy. I know. <laughs> we did have a dog. <laughs> my, I did have fun in my childhood, but it was also, I feel like I just was always like doing my homework studiously and mm. like playing the violin. It was a lot of like hard work. There was a lot of, there was a lot of like great and important structure and learning and and a lot of it came from us. Like my sister and I loved to learn and we always did. And so like a lot of that, like staying up all night reading and, and you know, going through the encyclopedia was like self-generated. Um, but it doesn't sound very cute, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> what about the music that was being shared or listened to in your house? Like what did your parents play for you that you liked? Like, off the top of my head, what I remember enjoying was, like, Earth, Wind, and Fire, Aretha Franklin, Peter, Paul, and Mary, James Taylor, um, and then, like, gospel choirs. We listened to, like, the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir sometimes, and uh, so, like, a mix of, like, folk, funk, soul, um, and gospel. I always hated my dad's, like smooth jazz that was like the one like parents music I couldn't stand and like I have an appreciation for jazz now but at the time I was like ugh, nauseous I hate it stomach that's ache. dad music yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> the Protestant church played a big role in your early musical life it sounds like your dad was singing and playing the organ in church yeah. um, you were in the choir and you'd eventually play harp in the church how do you reflect back on what the church did for your musicality growing up? I think it gave me some like early chances to like be with my friends sharing something and having music be like if you're a little girl that plays harp like Christmas is a big time so like being able to share something with people and like be like really in the middle of things and not at the fringe of things was that was like very special but at the same time I think there is this interesting tension in like the evangelical-esque community that I grew up in where a focus on the self is really negative and maybe for good reason but that makes it really hard to define yourself as someone that's going to become like a singer-songwriter and mm. I think I struggled with that over the years because um, you really want to be other-centered if you're going to have if you're going to maintain that kind of spirituality and you want to be focusing on God and on your community and what you can do for this larger purpose. So the idea of sitting alone in a room writing about your own feelings um, can feel really wrong and mm. almost sinful. Um, and of course, there are amazing examples like in the Psalms where and like lamentation type of writings in like these ancient texts where... Uh, there is a tradition of of writing in that way, but it, it it's hard to uh, make a case for it when the people around you want to go on mission trips and you want to write about yourself. <laughs> <laughs> um, around age 10, you're getting tired of the violin, so you picked up the yeah. harp. 
after seeing an episode of Different Strokes? Yes. <laughs> you did your research. You know my whole childhood probably better than I. Yeah. <laughs> Why do you think you were drawn to such an instrument? You said it was the weirdest instrument you could imagine. I just thought it was so big. I, I loved the idea that it had to be wheeled in on a... <laughs> on a dolly <laughs> I don't know like when you're 10 who knows like what you're drawn to but I I saw it in different strokes and then I saw it like at the American Girl store and it just looked so fancy and so big and different um and then I just remember really liking it right away like I always loved music but I didn't love playing the violin for some reason um even though I love to listen to it now but I just always enjoyed playing the harp and I didn't mind practicing so that's what I stuck with Mm. Can you talk a little bit more about how you felt after you started playing the harp, like how you were able to grow into the instrument? Yeah, I mean, just right away, I liked the sound of it. And I liked how it felt leaned up against me. Um, and I think that that physical sensation is something that I still return to all the time now. Mm. Like, I've never been the most the most disciplined with practicing, but I just love the feeling of the harp. Um, and the sound that it makes, even when I'm just messing around, playing scales, playing arpeggios, like it just always feels therapeutic and calming. And I'm a person that has high energy and anxiety. And I love the feeling of just the really mellow atmospheric sounds that the harp makes. So I think it's like a good therapy for me. Um, and, and early on I was able, like my, I had a teacher that let me play a mix of like classical pieces and then kind of folksy and Celtic pieces. And then I, I remember I got to play Beauty and the Beast at one of my recitals. So it was kind of a nice mix of, of types of music that Mm. I got to play. And what kind of harp do you play? It's smaller. Yeah, I currently play, I currently play a therapy harp, which was designed for music therapists. Um, so that's like such a cool use of the instrument. It's not what I do, but they made it small enough that you can put a strap around it and walk around with it. Like you could go into hospitals or you could do um, therapeutic classes with it. Cool. Um, you, yeah. When you were growing up, you were interested in, like kids are interested in popular music and you had some friends yeah. that played the guitar. Where did you and your harp fit into the music you were interested in making? I mean, at the time, I don't know that it did. I don't, I, I'm sure I'm like ignorant of it, but there weren't that many examples of like a prominent harpist playing, um, like the the Dixie Chicks didn't have a harpist on tour with them. Like that's who I wanted to, that's who I wanted to be. (laughs) Like did Leanne Rhymes have like a harpist with her? I don't know. Um, But those were the types of music that I wanted to play. So I just figured out what the chords were. Like I think any guitar like budding guitar player would and just tried to play along to pop songs and country songs and that's kind of how I got my start in thinking that being a singer-songwriter could be a thing. Hmm. You went to Stanford for poetry and literature and your senior year you finally gave yourself permission to be an artist and write songs and it's interesting to hear how that evangelical religious side of things maybe put a, a a the brakes on that for a little while, but can you talk about that process of realizing that you had something worthwhile to say with songwriting and you that you wanted to express yourself artistically? 
Yeah, I mean, it was really hard for me. I don't want to be like over dramatize something like, oh, my little my artistic struggle and, and all that. But it, it was tough to, especially when you're someone that didn't come from a lot of money and you get a degree from a prestigious university and you realize that you're going to have job opportunities that your parents didn't have um, and your extended family might not have had. And, and, and then to decide I'm going to go into something as risky as being a singer songwriter and trying to play open mics like that was a that was really tough along with the spiritual side of things so I think there were a lot of barriers mentally to me giving myself the chance to do it um and I remember my uh kind of throughout my undergrad career I worked as a um research assistant in a political psychology lab where we worked on like voter behavior and political attitudes and you know, people's attitudes towards climate change and things like that, and was really interesting work. Um, but with a lot of the data entry that I was doing, you, it's kind of like you focus visually on these long rows of data. <laughs> and so you're just looking at lines and lines and lines of, of like code, and then you can listen to music. So I would listen to music for like 10 hours a day, um, almost uninterrupted. And so I, over time, I started to realize that I was a lot more interested in like, whatever Brandy Carlisle or like Nirvana YouTube window I had going, than whatever I was actually supposed to be working on. And uh, apologies to <laughs> the amazing professors that I worked for. But I just, I just felt this nagging sense that like, though I was doing interesting, intellectually important work, I was just so much more interested in music and it kept calling to me and it kept grabbing me and that I was always going to have this sense of a loss if I didn't give mm -hmm. it a shot. So by the time my senior year came around where I had like organized my schedule to be like mostly poetry and a little bit of playwriting, I was like, okay, I think I need to give this a chance. And I was playing in a band with friends on campus and we were like playing every campus party and just having so much fun playing for our friends that I was like, okay, maybe this could also be a little bit fun and I can give it a shot in some way. So that was when I got the seed of the idea. Hmm. How did Bob Dylan change your relationship to songwriting? I rem remember I got this gig and this is like the least interesting way to like get into something, but it was like by necessity, the, um, the Harmony House where I worked on campus, which was like the Diversity Arts Center, hired me to play at an art exhibition of um, really awesome protest art and like protest posters. And so I played a set on the harp of almost entirely Bob Dylan songs. And I had already really liked Bob Dylan, but like having to figure out how to play a whole set on the harp of his political songs just kind of like blew my mind open. <laughs> <laughs> and there's just such a powerful feeling that I get when I'm playing Dylan of like the, the urgency and the specificity that he uses in his writing and the feeling that it's like these there are morality tales that are still so contemporary. Um, and I just really try to capture something like that in my writing. He's a huge hero of mine. Mm. As a young black person, you said you didn't know if there was a place for you within the folk genre. And you listened to Tracy Chapman growing up. Uh, what can you say about the importance of representation in music? And also, how did it feel to discover other black folk musicians 
and what did their accomplishments mean to you? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think we're, I think a lot of people are still under the impression that there's like, it, that that like cultural appropriation goes equally in different directions. So like, we all know about the issue of like white artists taking black forms and not giving credit where it's due. I hopefully we all know about that. That's a huge problem. But I think I had the impression that like, oh, if I am to play country and folk music, like I'll be taking someone else's music as though it were my own and I might feel really strongly about it, but it's still not authentic to me. Um, and it's the reason I thought that is because I didn't know enough about history to know that folk music is black music and it comes from the blues and it comes from African musical forms that were brought over because of slavery. And like, it is this awful, awful lie and an erasing of history to believe that I would be taking something that isn't already mine. Um, but when I first got started, I didn't know that. I didn't know about the history. I didn't know the banjo came from Africa. Like I didn't know about all of the black blues and folk and country artists who have been like forcibly removed from the history of these forms. So I feel like I was just like fighting my way into something that I didn't necessarily have a right to. Um, but once I started to learn about all of the black artists that are in folk right now, I mean, there are just so many, I can't even begin to name some who are friends and some who are like just heroes of mine. Um, I started to realize like, oh, it doesn't look like you're wearing a costume. We do belong here. And I started to learn a little bit more about that history. Mm. I think it was when I heard uh, Valerie June's work in Women Blues, like in like 2013 or so, that I was like, a light bulb went off. And I was like, oh, this is still so relevant. I still have a chance to make my, my own name in this in this form. Mm. So like rep for representation, I think it's like, a representat representation is important, but it's only the tip of the iceberg. Like the artists that we know of are only a hint of all the history that's right. been there. So like we are making our own way, not only for ourselves, but like to remember the black artists that came before us, that history hasn't given their due. Um, and it's like our responsibility to like keep bringing their names up. Yeah. Thank you for that answer. Really good. Oh, yeah, of course. Thanks for asking. I love to talk about it. <laughs> um, you had not been exposed to much folk music growing up, but your voice has like a very Appalachian-inspired tone to it. Like I was thinking Gene Ritchie mm -hmm. on certain songs. Oh, yeah, thank you. <laughs> what is your relationship like with your voice? Um, and also I'm wondering, like, how does singing with the harp differ from singing with the guitar? Oh, wow. This is stuff that I love to talk about. I think like my voice physically, not like my songwriter voice, is one of the main reasons that folk music has stuck because I love to sing like a rock song. I love to sing pop. And like growing up, I did choral music, but it's physically so demanding for me to sing anything other than like the songs that I write. And I think I don't know if it's a strength or a weakness or whatever, but I've always had a little, like a little bit of a rasp. Um, and as a kid, I had like vocal nodes. So I had to take breaks from singing like the intense choral music that I was doing. Um, but in folk music, it's good to be gentle. 
So it's like, it's good to be good to your voice and it's okay to sound a little rough around the edges. And I think that that has helped me feel at home in this genre. My relationship with my voice has at times been a really like confrontational one because if I'm not healthy, my voice is the first thing that shows it. Like if I'm not getting enough sleep, if I'm not drinking enough water, if I've, you know, had too many beers last night, like you'll know it in my voice. And so it's something that I've had to like really learn to take care of. <laughs> I don't know if that's like kind of a tangent, but it's it's also made it like it's also made me so grateful to be in a genre that like welcomes some of those imperfections. When writing on the harp, you say there's a certain feeling that you have playing the harp that you don't have playing the guitar or piano. There's a way that you hold the harp and that the harp holds you. And I feel like that informs my songwriting, which we were talking about a little bit earlier. But oh, yeah. can you can you expand on that a little bit more? Yes. And that leads to the second part of your question, which I forgot earlier, which is that like your face is really close to the strings when you hold the harp. So I, you end up singing differently. Um, I feel like I have a care and I don't want to describe it as a cautiousness, but maybe just a gentleness that I sing with um, on the harp because you're able to like really intimately sort of like do your own sound mixing because you can hear exactly what's coming out of the instrument because the strings and the soundboard are like right up against the side of your face, <laughs> especially with the small harp <laughs> that I play with on stage. Um, so you want to like self-balance your voice against the harp, because which is different from the guitar, which is another like fun way to perform because the sound holes down at your belly and you feel this projection that's coming out and you can sing really powerfully maybe in a way that you wouldn't want to with the harp or that you would just have to really really think carefully about so like volume is one thing and then just the rhythmic the rhythm the rhythmic playing is a, is a little bit different because you can't no you can't sustain a note on the harp or the guitar but on the harp the the notes resonate for so much longer um, because of how pliable the strings are, especially the lower really stretchy strings, like the gut strings. Um, so there's just this resonance where all of the sounds are intermingling in a way that they don't on really any other instrument. Um, so your voice ends up being a part of this chorus that it wouldn't be um, on any other instrument. And I, it's hard to describe almost, it's like you're, you're a part of this big mm. circle of sound. You moved to Brooklyn in 2015. Yes. And you were playing with Devil in the Deep Blue Sea, where you That's started correct. you started writing a lot of songs. Creatively, what was that time like and what did you discover about yourself through writing for your band? I think I realized that I liked playing every day, um, which is like something that I I have this weird relationship with practice where I think of myself as a lazy person and then I have to be reminded that I actually really enjoy the work. Um, we just had this commitment to like, let's give this a real shot and let's let's play together, you know, as often as we can, like several times a week. So just the, in the intensity of it was helpful for me and it helped me crank out a bunch of songs, many of which were bad and will never be shared with the public. <laughs> um, and... 
Yeah, and then it also taught me that I need to be a solo artist, not because there was anything wrong with that band, and I really enjoyed working with Pat Kennedy, my dear friend, who has played on both of my solo albums, um, but because I get this like internal inner critic when I'm producing for a group where I'm like, ah, this is too silly to say to a group. Hmm. Um, that when it's just my name behind it, I feel like, okay, if this lyric is dumb, I'm the only person that's going to be blamed for it. So I, I have, I had to release that need to like, please anyone else before I was able to like, get my best writing done. Hmm. So your, your name is Lizzie Quinlan, but you go by Lizzie No. Yeah, it just came to me. <laughs> yeah, does it does it mean anything? I mean, in part, I just felt like I needed to push aside a lot of things, like all the things we've talked about, like all of the self-doubt and the need to please other people and other people's expectations, my own worries. That I just had to say no, 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 and push it all aside and see what was left in the middle to become myself. Yeah, I found this list of things that you would tell your younger self to do, and one of them was you can say no. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I'm still working on it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a reminder. I have it tattooed on my leg, the word no. I, like, really need to get better at it. <laughs> well, yeah, it's a, so then it makes a lot of sense to name yourself after your favorite word. Yeah, no. <laughs> No. And as a, as a sassy two-year-old, I'm sure I said it a lot. Totally. <laughs> Your first album, Hard One, came out in 2017. A really beautiful album full of personal songs. There's a song called The Killing Season about police brutality towards black people. And this might be a, a weird question, but like when I hear you answer questions about that song or socially relevant or conscious songs... And, you know, I could be wrong about this observation, yeah. but you seem to make it a point to say that you don't set out to write those types of songs. They're just on yeah. your mind because this is your reality and it organically happens. Um, what is your intention in making sure that people know those socially conscious songs come from an authentic place? Like, do you not want to be labeled yeah. something specific? Yeah, I think that political music can get a bad name, even though we really need it. And I never want people to think that I believe that I speak for the movement of Black Lives Matter. Like, I am just one person saying the things that I genuinely feel. Um, like, I don't want anyone to think that I am trying to get across a specific set of political aims. Um, and there is art that tries to do that. Like, I think a lot of visual art can be great for doing that. I think there are political songs that are able to do that, that are able to point at the end point, like the solution. I am not someone who is, I can get behind great solutions, but that, I don't think that's my gift. I think my gift is pointing out the reality that I can see mm. now. Um, and I think that we get, we, we get it wrong when we try to make people do everything. And I think the Black Lives Matter movement has been great about articulating some really, really great endpoints as far as like defunding the police, as far as, you know, changing our schools. You know, there's a long list. And I think 
we need to be taking those aims seriously. But there are also people out there who are really good at diagnosing the problem. And that's just as valid. And, and so, yeah, that's kind of why I want to point that out, because it's important to me that people know that I'm not trying to, I'm not actually trying to like, solve things. I'm actually just trying to say what I think. Hmm. Um, And I think that that is important that people be allowed to do that. (laughs) The Mountaineer is about a hike you took in New Zealand. And this is a quote. I feel like this is a quote. I didn't put the beginning parentheses. I can probably find, I can probably (laughs) let you know if it's true. Okay. I am so motivated by the possibility of trading in guilt and expectations and getting connectedness in return. It's a moral exchange that we instinctively make when we get outside, which is so nice. Oh, thank you. (laughs) I don't remember (laughs) saying that, but it sounds like maybe it was me. (laughs) So smart. So many words. (laughs) Thanks. All the words. Well, I think it's like that things in nature don't mean anything. And I am of the belief that nothing in life means anything unless we decide that it does. Like, I don't think there is a narrative to our lives. I don't think things happen for a reason. I think it's all just happening and that can feel really scary. Um, But it can also be really empowering and it, it feels really natural when you're out in the woods Like, it doesn't feel scary that nothing means anything. You're just there being among other living things, some of which are sentient, some of which we're not sure, Um, just being sort of connected and in harmony with other other beings. Hmm. So I think that that's like a really good place to go reset our expectations for ourselves. You also said of the mountaineer, I wanted more songs about black people hiking. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What has been your experience as a black hiker? Oh my gosh. Well, I love to be outside and I always need to be near a park. Even though I live in New York City, I like am outside in the park every day. Um, I think that we're out there and we have our own traditions of being outside. Um, whether it's like going for group walks or having barbecues or, all, or hiking. Um, but it's so frustrating that hiking and like birding, as we've learned, have been seen as such white um, activities. Um, I have always felt really free and I think part of free, like out in the woods. And I think that that has been a great thing that Princeton gave me. It's a really heavily wooded area. I had a great like outdoor coach in high school, the one who took me on the, uh, uh, trip to New Zealand. And I think people were asking about like, is it safe to like go backpacking and sleep in a tent for, you know, weeks at a time. And he was like, I think I would feel more scared of other people than I would feel of the outdoors. Um, And as a black person, that really resonated. Like, there is so much that is manageable in nature that is not manageable in company with other people. (laughs) Mm. That might be like a cynical view, but that is definitely how I feel. (laughs) Um, Your new album is Vanity. Yes. Has nine songs on it, all about the different sides of the ego. And I was reading about this zen understanding of the ego that like really influenced you and I was like trying to understand it I just wonder if can you explain it because I can't well yeah I am not an expert whatsoever I listen to Oprah's Super Soul Sundays just like everyone else oh yeah the uh the idea is just that like there is a self that is not the same as the conception of the self um and like the identity that we believe that we have is not necessarily the same as this like 
eternal thread of our soul that is neither good nor bad is just there. Um, so whether we're feeling sorry for ourselves and saying like, I'm such a loser, I'm this, I'm that, I've failed in these ways and that's me, or like, I'm better than so-and-so and like, here are all the reasons why. Like the highs and the lows are often ego. And it's like, there's an observing self that is seeing all of those things and remains. That's like the more central self. Um, so like, I wanted to think about what are the highs and lows for me of ego and what is the central self saying and put it into nine different songs that all mm. kind of have a different angle on it. So like all of the songs are sort of inspired by things in my life, but they're not all autobiographical. Like some of them feel like characters, like my ego on steroids, whether for good mm. or for bad. Uh, I'm also wondering like how big of a Tori Amos fan you are. I love Tori Amos. <laughs> This seems she, like a very Tori yeah, Amos thing like, to do. <laughs> that would be her territory for sure. I really want to meet her and talk about ego now. That's going on my bucket list. I would like to hear that conversation. So can you call me? Okay, I'll happens? let you know when it happens. Okay. You can moderate. Great. That would be so awesome. Yeah, because I also <laughs> saw on um, one of the articles they wrote about you, you you were also able to like put a charity that you wanted to um, yeah. amplify, and it was rain, and I was like, yeah are you a torophile <laughs> and then and then reading about vanity i was like oh definitely <laughs> yeah no rain is a really great organization if anyone listening has an extra coin rain uh they help abuse and incest survivors so throw your money towards them yeah for sure what did you learn about your ego while writing this album like did it change the way you interact with others like for example like yeah. how did writing this record help you understand and deal with like conflict or something like that well yeah it made me realize that like feeling sorry for myself is just as big of an ego trip as like feeling awesome and like adding up all my successes um and that like the song narcissus was like came out of this realization that like when I go through a breakup and I, you know, count up all the ways I've been wronged and I put myself in this pure victim position, like that is like painting myself as the target of a universal conspiracy that is a fiction. Like the universe doesn't care about me. Like there, there aren't like gods and demons planning my downfall. Like I made choices. Other people made choices. We're all doing our best. I should try to do a bit better. It like it it dulls some of those sharp lows. Mm. <laughs> so like that is a benefit that I've gotten from like really digging down into the uglier parts of my own ego. I um, listened to this audiobook one time about narcissism and how there's like a range of narcissism yeah. and how it's like, it was like broken down into the, like it was based on zero to 10 and like 10 yeah. is like your ultimate extreme narcissist and then zero. We know a few of these in this country. Yeah. <laughs> and zero would be like extreme echoists. Um, yeah. And that neither end of the scale is good, you know, and it's good to be in the middle. But like it definitely got me into Whoa. that myth, you know, like the, there's like. And they use the word echoist. Mm hmm. Wow. That's so that's so on point. Yeah. And it was talking about how like if you're between like a 
four and a six on the scale, mm-hmm. that's like really healthy because it's healthy to let people want to make you feel special. Yeah. You know, as opposed to like Echo, who doesn't want anyone no. to make her feel special. She doesn't even want to say her own name. And I do think that I've grown in my ability to like say out loud, like, I want good things for myself. Like, I want the soft robe. I want the good chocolate. Like, yeah. <laughs> th- that's that's the life I want for myself. And I, I think I've only even said that out loud in the past couple of years. And it always gets a chuckle because the language of echo is much more accepted in our society unless you're a rapper um but it's just as bad to like talk down about yourself it's all ego yeah (laughs) so like in your exploration for interrogating echo's innocence how did you reckon with the discovery of her ego and then recognize it in yourself Ooh, well I don't really remember the exact sequence of events, but it involved a really tough breakup with someone that I quickly realized was really narcissistic, narcissistic. And then feeling this feeling in myself of like, it's weird because I've felt this way before. Like this situation (laughs) isn't unique. Why am I feeling so small? And like, I have, pe- I have people in my family, no names named, we love them, that do have a little bit of that narcissistic streak and do have a little bit of that, some that do have that echoist streak. And so it's like, oh, I've been, I've had an imprint since childhood of feeling this way. Like I've, this is a pattern. This isn't like this relationship was so, so, so bad. It's just that it's a repeating pattern. Mm. So I went down to the public library and I got a book on Greek mythology, because I've loved Greek mythology since I was a kid, but I hadn't really read up on the Narcissus myth since, I don't know, middle school. Um, And so I read more of the details, and the more I focused on Echo, the more I realized, like, oh, light bulb, like, she's a real character. And I don't think she gets treated as a real character, because the story itself is, like, called the Narcissus myth. We don't think about her as an agent. But I always want to think of any woman in any story as an agent who's capable of her own choices. And so the less I thought of her as a mythological character and the more I thought of her as a person, like, who is that person? Like, who is the person who chooses the narcissist and, like, wants it? Like, and and allows that hurt to define her. Mm. Um, Not that she's to blame for anyone's bad actions, but... who is the person that's shaping their whole life around that (laughs) and their whole identity around it. And, and I was uncomfortable with the ways in which I identified with her. And I was like, well, this can't go on. And I just kind of got really into the writing process of like, what is going on from her perspective? She sees him and he looks just like her and it's so exciting. And then everything comes crashing down and what's next. And in thinking of like recognizing your pattern and yeah. seeing yourself in Echo and then thinking back to like where you like how you felt in your in your own hometown of like being uncomfortable yeah. all the time. Like what was that? What was like it seems like, you know, for me, like breaking out of my pattern, it was like super uncomfortable. You know, it, yes. it was hard. It didn't feel right. I could feel myself like gravitating towards like what I was used to. But what was it like for you? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I mean, it's so uncomfortable, but it's so it when you start to make better choices and you start to like think of yourself differently and stand up a little bit straighter and hold yourself a little bit more accountable instead of like putting 
responsibility onto other people who don't have your best interests at heart. Like you start to feel like, I feel like life pulls you, you know, not life pulls you, but like the consequences are so attractive when you're like, oh, I was about to be attracted to that bad situation again. And I turned the other way, like, and I still have two arms and two legs and I'm unhurt. And I, in fact, feel good. Like it immediately like sets off this feeling of like, I want that more. I want to feel like I have power. I want Mm. to feel like I belong. I want to feel like I get to make the choices and no one's making them for me. Like it just starts to feel so good to like do a little bit better every time. Yeah, that's so true. Why is nothing easy? No, I don't know. I get back to me if you find out. Okay, (laughs) I will. In writing the record, Vanity, you learning about the stories that you tell yourself, how did the story that you are telling yourself change? And what is your practice like to become more conscious of your true self? I write in my journal a lot more. Um, I have been keeping a journal on and off since I was seven. And I have some of those like old middle school journals, which are very cute and like a little sad. Um, But I feel like in my mid-20s, I got really bad at it. And I felt like I was so caught up in the tunnel vision of, like, struggle that I couldn't even make time to reflect um, on what was going on. So now I'm really big on, like, sitting at a bar or a cafe or more often in quarantine, like, in my house (laughs) and just writing what's going on. And it can be down to the micro level of, like, I feel really hot. Uh, I'm wearing my pajamas um, and that'll just get me started into like doing a little bit of self-reflection and allowing myself to say things that are uncomfortable. So that's kind of how I kind of keep myself in check and make sure that I'm like staying conscious of what I'm going through and not just like falling down a rabbit hole of bad emotions or falling mm-hmm. down a rabbit hole of self-pity or going on some other ego trip that's not going to be helpful. You actually write with like a pen, not yeah. type. Yeah. It feels really good to write with a pen. I just love the feeling of filling up Doesn't a blank that make your page. Hand tired? It does. So I only write a few pages at a time. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'll like stop, get a snack, and then I'll come back. We're actually like we went through these questions like boom 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 boom. I got well, one I more. I love to talk. <laughs> I'm a Jersey fast talker. <laughs> <laughs> one more question. Okay. Um, and then something else before you go. Um, okay. You're someone who has been on a journey that's led you to trust your own instincts, prioritize your wellness, and value your own company above all, um, which is the you're, yeah. you're living the dream. That's the dream, the examined life. How do you think all this affects your writing? I think it makes it a little bit more honest, which I hope – I. The, the whole point is that I can't focus on the results. I can only focus on the honesty and my own process. But what I hope is that it makes it a little bit more specific and by virtue of that, more relatable. Because I really try not to write about things. I don't go in with a topic. I just get comfortable with my own micro experience and then write it down. And then I have to have faith that that will be good enough for someone else to listen to. So like, that's the direction that my writing is headed. Um, And it has made writing more fun. 
because I don't feel like I have to break through this barrier of bullshit and metaphor every time. Like, I feel like I'm already comfortable writing down my own observations and experiences. And all I have to do is like sit down and write. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's all about practice and like practicing, staying conscious, like both for my own wellness and for the quality of the writing. Hmm. All right, Lizzie, no, we're going to do the lightning round. Lightning round. (laughs) Here we go. You ready? Okay. Yes. First song you learned on the guitar. I'm on fire. Karaoke song. Nine to five. Dogs or cats or something else. Both. And monkeys. (laughs) (laughs) Acceptable answer. What is your coffee order? Uh, large, hot coffee with a little bit of milk. Favorite junk food? Ooh, favorite junk food. Sour straws. Is that like a Sour Patch Kid, but a straw? Yeah, like the long, skinny ones. (laughs) Favorite U.S. city? Um, okay, New York City, but outside of my own, I would say Memphis. First album you bought with your own money? Destiny Child Survivor. First concert? Uh, oh, Avril Lavigne. Wow. Avril Lavigne. I'm proud of it. I stand by it. <laughs> was that in the year 2000? The I think it was 2001 or two. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Right around there. Sounds about right. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right, bookworm. Last book you read. Well, the book I'm reading right now is Purple Hibiscus by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie so good and i hope i said her name right i tried my best (laughs) dream collaboration oh i want to work with amy mann so bad sweet morning person or night owl morning person flying or invisibility flying star trek or star wars trek (laughs) i was strongly very (laughs) strongly star trek over star wars which version um, well, the next generation, because that's what I had as, yeah. you know, a, a youth. Wesley, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. All right, last one. Where is the most beautiful place you've ever visited? Oh, man. I mean, honestly, I love the Catskills. I love the lakes. I love the little waterfalls. I love how it's like nothing too fancy it's just like really really good trees really close to new york city awesome yeah bonus question what's your favorite scented candle oh um favorite scented candle well i have a really great like christmas tree fur scented Mm -hmm. one that i do all year round Mm -hmm. so like a fur scent outside of christmas is really comforting well thanks that's the lightning round Thank you so much. You've you've done very well. <laughs> uh, well, thanks for talking to me. It was thank you so very much for fun. having me on. Basic Folk this week, produced by Adam Corey. Lindsay Myers is our business manager. Social media producer is Laura McCarthy. Alex Stanton of Townspeople does our music. Basic Folk is pleased to be a part of the American Songwriter Podcast Network. I'm your host, Cindy Howes. You can find all of these episodes at cindyhowes.net, all 94 and counting episodes, or wherever you get podcasts. Please subscribe, 
rate, review, share with your mom and all of your friends and uh, all of your enemies as well. Um, And let's take care of each other moving forward. uh, And I will talk to you later. Okay, bye. (laughs) 